Today's sermon comes from Genesis 4, 1 through 16. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and a Cain worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel was also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain, in his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. A couple of years ago, the calm and ordinary streets of Beihai, it's a city in China, experienced the, the massive collapse of concrete and asphalt, which turned into this gaping sinkhole in the city. One of the more intriguing parts of the story when this happened was uh, a scooter rider who got an upfront and close view of this sinkhole. NPR reported on it and said that this person who was riding their scooter uh, was staring down at their cell phone and didn't aware, wasn't aware of the sinkhole and literally just plunged into the sinkhole. And then a couple minutes later, uh, they were crawling out of this sinkhole in their own power. Thought about that story. What a picture of how oftentimes we experience sin. Minus the part of crawling out under our own power. But plunging into a hole of sin and then wondering, how in the world did I just get here? What happened that I'm now sitting in this hole? Now, while we may not be aware of what led to us falling in the hole, I can assure you that sin is aware of how you got in that hole. Right? Verse 7 says that sin is crouching at the door. Sin works in a certain way, and oftentimes we're unaware of it to the extent that we get caught in it and scratch our heads. 
spiritual maturity is actually becoming more and more aware of how sin works so that we can tap the brakes. How does sin work? How does it work in the human heart? To answer this, we're going to look at the beginning of sin, the act of sin, and then the end of sin. First, the beginning of sin. Cain's sin of murder actually begins in verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Two brothers both bring an offering to the Lord. One is accepted, one is not. Abel's offering is accepted, Cain's is not. The, the, the glaring question is why? Now, some have said that the reason that Abel's offering is accepted is because it was a blood offering, right? There was an animal sacrificed and that Cain's offering was not. It, it didn't involve blood. The, the problem with that reason is that the word for offering here in Genesis 4 in Hebrew, and that same word that appears throughout the first five books of the Bible does not talk about or does not refer to a blood offering. It refers to a, a cereal or a grain type of offering. So then what was the reason why Abel's offering was accepted and Cain's was not? Well, look closely at what was offered to the Lord. It says, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Abel brought to the Lord the firstborn of his flock. What we learn here is that Cain brought a token to God. Abel brought his best, most valuable animal to the Lord. Cain brought a token. Abel brought his best. And that was motivated by two hearts that were in very different places. Hebrews 11.4 confirms this. It says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Cain was playing what I would call religious games with God. What do these games look like? Well, God talks about this religious game numerous times in the Old Testament, but in Hosea 6, he says this. God says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God wants your heart, not your empty spiritual disciplines. God wants relationship, not just transaction. What we learn here is that Cain didn't just make a bad choice with his offering. Cain actually made a very consistent choice based on where his heart was. You see, worship is ascribing worth to God. Worship is ascribing worth to something, right? If it's not God, you will ascribe it to something. And what we see here is that Cain 
did not love God above all else. And therefore, his offering went to, to that which he loved most, which was self. Cain was a lover of self. And so therefore, the first fruit, the best of his, the fruit of his ground went to himself and God received a token. Abel was just the opposite, right? Abel loved God above all else and therefore the best, the best of his flock, his most valuable, went to God. What we learn here is that sin begins with a failure of worship. That's where sin begins. It begins with a failure of worship. Cain failed at the altar and therefore failed in the field. Right? That that is where sin begins. Your best offerings will always flow to that which you love most. When you understand that, what Cain did made absolute, complete sense. That his best flowed to that which he loved most, which was self. Your best offering, you don't have a choice in that. Your best offering will always flow to that which you love most. Okay? You can look at your checking account to see this principle at work. Okay? If inordinate amounts of your money are going to your savings account, then most likely it's because personal security is what you love most. Or if inordinate amounts of money are going to exotic vacations or entertainment or dining, then possibly your personal comfort and pleasure are what you love most. Or if inordinate amounts of money are going to your house payment, car payment, clothing, it's possible that your, your personal status and reputation in the community is what you love most. Now, I've used the example of your checking account. I could use the example of your calendar to say that we're, your time is going to go to what you love most, right? So checking account, calendar, those are kind of litmus tests that really just prove the truth that you are going to worship and send your best to that which you love most, right? How does sin work? We've looked at the beginning of sin. Sin begins with a failure of worship, but that failure of worship leads to an act of sin. It leads to an act of sin. After God accepts Abel's offering, but not Cain's, look what Cain does. End of verse 5. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Then verse eight, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Now, two observations about this act of murder on Cain's part. First observation is this, that murder starts in the heart and then moves out to the world around you. Or to broaden it, sin begins in the heart, and then moves out into the world around you. For Cain, the murder began in his heart. He got angry, and then it became physical. Uh, Jesus makes this connection in the Sermon on the Mount when he says that the physical act of murder right, begins with the act of murder in your heart. Right? You're going to murder somebody in your heart before you actually physically murder them. Now, why did, why did Cain murder Abel? This is actually an exact question that John asks in 1 John, in his letter of 1 John, chapter 3, verse 12. Listen to what he says. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did Cain murder Abel? Because his own deeds were evil 
and his brothers righteous. Now you get, well, okay, so why were Cain's deeds evil and why were his brother's deeds righteous? Well, John goes on to say in verse 16, by this we know love that Jesus laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Love is self-sacrificing. Hate is self-seeking, right? Love is self-sacrificing. Hate is self-seeking. That's the the theme of, of John's letter And he refers back to this situation with Cain and Abel as an example of what it looks like, what self-sacrifice looks like with Abel and his offering versus what self-seeking looks like with Cain and his offering, right? Cain was not a worshiper of God. Cain, as John says, was of the evil one. Cain, because of that, was a worshiper of self. And when self is on the throne all threats to that throne must be destroyed, right? If self is on the throne, to keep self on the throne, when any threat comes, it must be destroyed. And that's exactly what Cain did. Cain was on the throne. And as soon as his brother had success, right? Abel had success, religious success, and Cain failed, his only option at that point to keep himself on the throne was to bring his brother down and literally to just remove him and to kill him, right? Jealousy and envy are major red flags of being a worshiper of self. Jealousy and envy flows out of, I am on the throne. And when somebody starts to ascend the throne or surpass me, then jealousy and envy kicks in to say, this throne is being threatened. And I must destroy those who are threatening my throne at all costs. Now, that may not lead to physical murder. That's the end, but it can lead to character assassination, right? Gossip, slander, anything that would bring somebody down so that I remain on the throne, right? Because that is ultimately who I am worshiping. So that's the first observation that I want you to see in Cain's murder is that sin starts in the heart. And that ultimately the reason that we character assassinate or physically hurt or assassinate others would be because we are on the throne, right? Second observation though, of Cain's act of murder. It's interesting, the very first act of sin recorded after Adam and Eve's fall is the act of murder. And that's not a mistake because murder is an attack on the image of God. Murder is an attack on the image of God. Sin is an attack on the image of God. It dehumanizes. Now, what do I mean by that? The reason that you're a human being is because you are created with the image of God in the image of God. An animal does not bear the image of God. So you are set apart as a human. What sin does, and we see it here, what sin does is it literally uh, dehumanizes you. It dehumanizes you. And certainly murder is the extreme example of that, of dehumanizing you. It not only dehumanizes you, but it dehumanizes the world around you. Award-winning and best-selling novelist David Foster Wallace captures the essence of this dehumanizing nature of sin. In a graduation speech he gave 
in 2008, right before he committed suicide. Listen to what he said. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And pretty much anything you worship will eat you alive. It's another way of saying will dehumanize you. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power. You will feel weak and afraid, and you will, you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. Think about the, the worship of sexual pleasure in our culture and how that dehumanizes young teenage girls, treats them as a commodity, as an object in the, in the sex trafficking industry. Right? If you worship anything in creation, you will become like it, as insensitive to God and spiritually lifeless as a piece of wood, rock, or stone. Sin dehumanizes. So you have a failure of worship. That's where it begins, right? Sin doesn't begin with the act. It begins with a failure of worship. That failure of worship in the heart will lead to an act of sin, which is going to dehumanize you and dehumanize others around you. So where does it end? What is the end of sin? Depends on how you respond to it. Depends on how you respond to it. A, a lack of repentance will lead to misery. And that's what we see in the life of Cain. He sins, fails to repent, and it leads to misery. Look what happens. After he murders his brother, God pursues Cain with a question just like he pursued Adam his father with a question, right? God says to Abel in verse nine, where is your brother Abel? Very similar to the question that God asks Adam. Adam, where are you? It's a question that is designed to draw out from hiding. This question to Cain, where is your brother Abel, is designed to draw Cain out from hiding, to draw him into honest confession, and yet, how does Cain answer that question? Verse nine, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? A colossal, colossal failure of accepting responsibility for his sin. He did not own his sin. He would not own it. You say, where did he get that from? His father, Adam, did the same thing. When God said, where are you? What did Adam do? It's her fault. It's Eve's fault, right? A failure to own sin, a failure to accept responsibility like father, like son. 
Look what happens in verse 13. So he refuses to accept responsibility, but then you couple it with verse 13, which is self-pity. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Let me just speak to fathers for a second. Fathers, do not pass on blame-shifting and self-pity to your children. Teach your children to own their sin, to accept responsibility for it. And you don't just teach that, you have to model it as a father. Model what it looks like when you do wrong to not make excuses, to not blame shift, to not go into self-pity mode, to say, I sinned and I own it and I repent of it. Now note what Cain's lack of repentance brings into his life. Talked about misery, here it is. Look at verse 11. He's linked with the serpent in the cursed state. Verse 12, we learn that there will be a diminishing returns from his labor. In other words, work's gonna get really hard. It's gonna be frustrating. It's gonna be fruitless for Cain. Verse 14, Cain becomes fearful of physical exposure. He's afraid someone's gonna kill him. Paranoia sets in. All this is pretty clear on misery. Cain's failure to respond to his sin by owning it and accepting the responsibility for it leads into deeper and deeper misery. Now, is that the end? Well, that is the end if there's a lack of repentance. That is the end if you don't own your sin and continue to blame shift. It will just continue to bring on deeper misery. But that's not the end of sin. And God's made that clear. In fact, what he says in verse 15 of chapter three, when he promises to send a rescuer, from that moment on, we see what are called grace sightings. Grace sightings, and we certainly see it here in verse 15. After Cain murders his brother Abel, descends into misery, verse 15, then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. God protects Cain. What remarkable grace after what he's done that God would actually protect Cain and show grace to him. And yet this is consistent with what we see in the scriptures of, what, of how God extends common grace to everyone that's created in his image. And that means everyone. That God shows grace to his enemies. God shows grace to those that don't worship him. It's called common grace. Jesus speaks of it. In Matthew 5, 45, he says, for God makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. What we see here in the early chapters of Genesis is the prophecy of verse 15 in chapter three coming to fruition, where God talked about the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman being in opposition. The line of belief, the line of unbelief, describing the two categories of human beings that would move through history. And so with Abel, we see the seed of the woman, the line of belief, of worshiping God. With Cain, we see the line of unbelief, the seed of the serpent, not a worshiper of God. Right, moving forward, and yet we see God showing common grace to the line of unbelief. 
starting with Cain. But there's a deeper grace. There's a saving grace that surfaces in this passage. Common grace doesn't save anyone, can't forgive, but the deeper grace of God, saving grace does. Look at, look at verse 10. And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. The blood of Abel called for revenge. And God placed a curse on Cain because he murdered his brother. And yet Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, speaks about the blood of Abel. Listen to what it says. To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel called for revenge. The blood of Christ calls for forgiveness and cleansing. The murder against Abel called for a curse upon Cain. The blood of Jesus removes that curse so that there's forgiveness and there's cleansing. The blood of Jesus cries out daily and reminds you daily that you're forgiven, that you're cleansed. Now, where does this leave you in the story of sin? Where does this leave you? That your failure of worship leads to an act of sin that dehumanizes, and yet upon repentance, you hear the beautiful blood of Jesus crying out for your forgiveness and, for, and your cleansing. Where does this leave you? Let me return to verse 7. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Now, number one, sin is crouching at the door. Sin is looking for an opportunity to destroy you. It's looking for an opportunity to dehumanize you. We see this in 1 Peter 5, 8. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. We see it in Romans 7, 8, sin seizes the opportunity. But sin is it's personified here, that it is out to ruin you, which means don't be lulled to sleep. Right? We're in the midst of the coronavirus outbreak, and because of that, we're vigilant on washing hands and doing the elbow greeting, all these things, right, to protect and not pass it along. Why? Because danger lurks. Because danger lurks, and so we're hypervigilant. Question would be, are we that way towards sin? Because I'll tell you, sin is much more deadly than the coronavirus. Are we vigilant about sin's intentions to ruin us, to dehumanize us? Right? So that's number one. But number two... Verse 7 says, you must rule over it. So you recognize that sin is out to dehumanize you, and you must rule over it. Verse 7 is describing this struggle for control. It's basically, you know, sin is out to, to destroy you, but don't let it control you, right? There's a battle for control. The, the language here 
you must rule over it means you must have dominion over it. It, it can usher us into this kind of Green Beret, uh, U.S. Army Special Forces approach to sin, right? You must rule over it. Strap on the armor and destroy it. Go destroy your sin. Defeat it. Don't let it control you. The problem with that is that's the kind of that Green Beret style of fighting sin uh, flows out of a misinterpretation of the David and Goliath story, where oftentimes we say, go be like David and defeat Goliath. Go be like David and defeat your sin. Well, the problem is we're not David in that story. You and I are the scared Israelites in our tents, unable to defeat Goliath. Right? David is the Christ figure. David is the one who defeats sin, defeats the, the epitome of sin and of evil, Goliath. Right? Jesus is the one who has defeated our sin. He's the one that fights for us. He's the one that goes before us. And so the question then becomes, if Jesus is victorious over my sin, if he has conquered my sin, if he's the one that has dominion over my sin, then how do I access that victory? How do I access the victory of Christ over my sin so that it does not control me? And this is where we have what are called the means of grace. It simply means the rhythms that God has given us by which we continually access the victory of Christ over our sin the Word of God, right? Preached publicly, read privately. Prayer, the sacraments, the Lord's Supper, baptism, uh, repentance, not in isolation, but in community. These are all the, the means by which we access the one who has defeated our sin and applies the victory to our lives. The rhythms of grace, Rhythms of God that God provides that gives us the victory, right? And dominion over sin. If you try to fight your sin Green Beret style, let me tell you what's going to happen. And when I say Green Beret style, I mean on your own, right? In Christ, with Christ, Christ fights our sin Green Beret style, and he defeated it. But on your own, if you fight your sin, two things are going to happen. One, you're going to fail. And in your failure, you're then going to begin to minimize your sin and redefine it. Blame shift, go to self-pity because you want to have victory over it. And if you can't defeat it, what's the way to have victory over it? Just act like it's not really there, right? Minimize it. That's what's going to happen. Years ago, the world watched as three gray whales off the coast of Point Barrow, Alaska were stuck underneath this massive ice pack. And they were bloodied, they were bruised, and there was one hole that they were literally gasping for air from. The only way that they were going to be saved is if they were uh, transported, you know, the miles and miles and miles, five miles or so away from the ice pack into the open ocean. And so what the rescuers did is they began cutting holes 20 yards apart through this six-inch slab of ice. And over a period of eight days, 
the first hole, 20 yards later, the second hole, 20 yards later, the third hole, they coached these whales from hole to hole to get air until eight days later, they finally had coached them all the way out of the ice pack to the open sea where there was freedom. Bruised and battered by your sin, God has provided a string of breathing holes in a world that has been frozen over with sin and greed and hate so that you can breathe. And these string of breathing holes are called the rhythms of grace, the means of grace, the word of God preached publicly, read privately, prayer, the sacraments, the Lord's Supper, which we're going to enjoy this morning, repentance in community, not in isolation. All these are breathing holes that you can come up for air and receive grace and access Christ's victory on a daily basis until Christ returns and destroys the ice cap forever. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you in the story of sin that the end is not misery. If we turn to you, Jesus, we believe that the end of the story of sin is misery on our own. And for some of that, some of us, maybe we're experiencing that. But Father, under the frozen cap of our world of sin and hatred and disease and sorrow, you have broken in through the death and resurrection of Christ and you have given us breathing holes. Every Sunday we gather like this as a corporate community, we receive and breathe that air of grace. And we do it throughout the week. And thank you for providing those breathing holes that we can find grace and receive victory, be reminded of victory. But it does make us long, Father, for the day that you will send your son a second time to destroy that ice cap forever. That we will be in the new heavens and the new earth where there won't need to be these rhythms or means of grace. We will exist in grace with you, Jesus, permanently and perpetually. Father, for those that are being beat up and bloodied by their sin right now, pray that you would draw them to the surface to breathe, that they would breathe in your grace, they would breathe in your forgiveness, they would breathe in your, your cleansing. And Father, for those that are here that have never, I mean, never come to the surface, never turn to you, Jesus, would you draw them to turn to you, Christ, and find cleansing and find forgiveness. As we sing now, would you prepare our hearts for this meal that you've put before us? It's intended to renew us and to refresh us. In Jesus' name, amen.